Alright, good morning everyone and welcome here to church today. Um, and to everyone who's joining us here today as a team for the dedication, a special welcome to you as well. Okay, we'll just start off. If the children that are going up to children's church wanted to come up the front and we'll just pray for them before they head out. Thank you, Lord, for these children that um, have come here today, and I pray that um, as they're taught that those teachings will fall in receptive hearts um, and that they'll be touched by those words and they'll remember them um, and that they'll find root in their heart and um, that yeah, going forward they'll um, just really remember those teachings and implement that into their lives. Amen. Okay. So I'll just pray and then we'll get into our sermon for today. Thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to open your word here today. I pray that I will interpret your scriptures accurately and um, that that what I preach will be true to your word. Uh, I thank you for this opportunity that we can worship you here um, and open doors that we're not having to do in hiding. Um, And I just pray that, um, that you'll speak me through me here today. Amen. All right, so over the last about six months, I've been working through the book of James with my sermons. We've covered off chapters one and two, and today we'll be exploring chapter three. So as a quick reminder of the background of this letter, the book of James is believed to be written by James, the brother of Christ. Same mother, different fathers. And it is written to the Jewish believers scattered among the nations. After, the persecu- um, after Jesus ascended back to heaven, there was extreme persecution of the believers, both first by the Jewish believers and then the Romans as well. This scattered the Jewish believers from Jerusalem to the surrounding areas and nations. James expands on the teachings of Jesus in the Old Testament to explain how it can be practically applied into our lives. So now on to our passage for day- today, chapter 3, where James teaches us about controlling the tongue and the source of true wisdom. He says, Dear brothers and sisters, not many of you should teach, become teachers in church, for we who teach will be judged more strictly. Well, I definitely drew the short straw here today with having to teach from this chapter, right? But I found myself a loophole. Change translations. The NASB puts it this way. Do not become teachers in large numbers, my brothers, since you know we who are teachers will be incur stricter judgment. So there's my loophole. Only teachers of large numbers will be judged more strictly. And this is Bull's Church. When we have a few visitors here like today, it doubles the congregation size. So I'm off the hook, right? Wrong. We can't manipulate and choose to interpret God's word just to suit our fancies. So let's have a look at what James is actually trying to say with this verse. Let's start by reading through the first section of the chapter to get a big picture context of what James is trying to say. James chapter 3, starting at verse 1. Dear brothers and sisters, not many of you should become teachers in church, for we who teach will be judged more strictly. Indeed, we all make many mistakes, for if we could control our tongues, we would be perfect and could also control ourselves in every other way. We can make a large horse go anywhere we want, by the means of a small bit in its mouth. 
and a small rudder makes a huge ship turn wherever the pilot chooses to go, even though the winds are strong. In the same way, the tongue is a small thing that makes great speeches. But a tiny spark can set a great forest on fire, and the tongue is a flame of fire. It is a whole world of wickedness, corrupting your entire body. It can set your whole life on fire, for it is set on fire by hell itself. People can tame all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and fish, but no one can tame the tongue. It is restless and evil, full of deadly poison. Sometimes it praises our Lord and Father, and sometimes it curses those who have been made in the image of God. And so blessing and cursing comes pouring out of the same mouth. Surely, my brothers and sisters, this is not right. Does a spring of water bubble out with both fresh water and bitter water? Does a fig tree produce olives, or a grapevine produce figs? No, and you can't draw fresh water from a salty spring. So there's a fair bit to unpack here. James chapter 3, verse 1 to 12, contains the single most sustained discussion in the New Testament of the use of the tongue. In these verses, James looks at what maturity, spiritual maturity looks like in our speech. And there are three key topics that James discusses in, rela- discusses in relation to the tongue. It's the disproportionate power, the destructive ability of the tongue, and the inconsistency of our tongue. In verses 13 to 18, James then explores what spiritual maturity looks like in our actions and who the true source of wisdom actually is, and just how destructive worldly wisdom is. Starting back at verse 1, though, let's unpack it from there. It's a fairly sobering thought for teachers, isn't it? And I think this is what James is trying to say. He doesn't just say, be careful teaching because you'll be judged more strictly. He says, not many of you should be teachers. It's a stop and think moment, a warning. So what is it about preaching that means that you're judged more strictly? And why does James say that not many should teach? The first important step here is to understand the cultural context of the time in which this letter was written. In James's time, being a teacher was viewed as that high-up status position. Teachers or rabbis would have followers or disciples, just like Jesus did, who would follow around their rabbi. Just think of the status of the Pharisees of the day and the culture of that time. The disciples of the rabbi would follow around in the dust of their teacher. Their goal was to emulate their exact mannerisms. They would eat food the same way. They, and they would go to bed and get up at exactly the same time as their rabbi. Most importantly, they would learn to study the Torah and understand God in exactly the same way as their rabbi or teacher. Wisdom was right at the heart of that culture, a bit like how entertainment is at the heart of our Western society culture nowadays. Because of this, many young men aspire to be teachers. And I think this is one of the things that James addresses with this verse 1, and making sure that people's motives are right. We don't fully understand this because learning and wisdom doesn't have that same place in our culture today. Just think, how many young men do you know whose goal it is in life to memorize massive portions of the Old Testament, or even the whole Old Testament, as some of those high um, top religious pupils of that time? To the young men of these days, James warns them, Take a minute to consider the responsibility of teaching. So why is it that there is stricter judgment on those who teach? 1 Corinthians 12 verse 28, Paul lists eight gifts or parts of the church, 
including teaching. But why is it that James only includes one of them here as incurring stricter judgment? In verse 5, James tells us that the tongue is like a spark, such a small, small thing, yet it can burn down a massive forest. Think of the Aussie bushfires last year. Such a destructive and powerful force, these flames, as they consumed everything in their path. Yet many of them would have started by a small flame or spark. And this is one of the pictures that James gives us of the human tongue. It is at the core of why he makes a statement, not many of you should teach. Teachers have a larger potential influence in the tongue, the words they speak, is at the heart of teaching, right? And we've just heard the unreliability of the tongue, that no man can control it. It makes great boasts. And in verse 2, James says, we all make mistakes. He might be the leader of the church in Jerusalem, but he includes himself here. He says, we all make mistakes. So from this, do you take out that no one should teach, that silence is the best option? Let's take another look at that spark. Granted, when it causes a bushfire, it's a tool of destruction. But you make a spark to light a fire in your house to warm the whole building. And you use a spark, and you can use a spark um, to cook food, to create a fire. And a spark, a flame, can be used to create electricity. And you need a spark to make a cargo. Or consider someone that is stranded in the bush dying of hypothermia. If a spark, a spark could save their life if it created a fire to keep them warm. In the same way, a word of teaching can convict someone in a way that saves their life eternally. Or provide encouragement or healing or conviction. Consider the man in the parable Jesus told when he said, Before the master went away, he entrusts five talents of gold to one servant, another two, and another one. That servant had one talent of gold, hides it in the ground, until his master is to return, because he's scared that he might lose it, and what his master's judgment would be if he did that. And what's the reply of the master on his return? If you read the story, you know it's not congratulations on being conservative and keeping safe that talent of gold. He addresses him and says, you wicked and evil servant, and then throws him out into the outer darkness. So the intention of James's teaching is not to scare everyone away from teaching, but rather to call to the intention of prospective and existing teachers that they have much more potential opportunity to sin with their tongue since they're using it more. And if they make a mistake, the size of the potential destruction can be much larger because they're preaching to, they're preaching to an audience. They've got a lot larger influence. The position and purpose of teaching is not to push across your own agenda and beliefs, but rather to explore scriptures and help people to interpret them and teach people the truth and challenge them and encourage them and convict them on how they should live, helping them reach their maturity of faith. Reading from Ephesians 4.11 Jesus gave some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach maturity in faith, sorry, unity of faith, and in the knowledge of the Son of God, and become mature, attaining full wholeness, whole measure in the fullness of Christ. Teaching should build up the body of Christ and create unity of faith. 
James's teachings on the tongue in verses 2 to 12 aren't just those for teaching, though, right? Just in case you're sitting there today, you're thinking you're getting off scotch free. It's not only relevant for me standing up here today, but for each one of you. Picking up in verse 2, Indeed, we all make mistakes, for if we could control our tongues, we'd be perfect and could control ourselves in every way. James isn't saying, sorry, is James saying that if we learn to control our tongues, we'd be perfect, just like Jesus was perfect? Let's take a quick, uh, another look at that first sentence a bit closer. Indeed, we all make mistakes. James first says, we all make mistakes. So the way I read this is James is saying that no one can fully control their tongues. So no one is perfect. But if someone could, they would have full control. But if someone could fully control their tongues, then they would have full control over themselves. Because this is how hard it is to control your tongue. Or is anyone here who's confident enough to say, yeah, I can fully control my tongue? I, for one, wouldn't be putting my hand up to that question. Also, the Greek word used here to be translated to perfect is telos, which means complete control over a whole process. Because of how difficult it is to control the tongue, James tells us, if you can fully control your tongue, you would be able to fully control every other area of your life, because this is just how hard it is. In other words, how well you control your tongue is just one sign of spiritual maturity. So now, what does James mean by saying that the tongue is like a bit in a horse's mouth or a rudder on a boat? These are both very small parts and relative to the rest of the horse or ship that determine the direction and ultimately the destination where the horse or the boat are going. And with that boat, think of a big sailing ship in James's time with those massive sails. And when the winds built up, they would be driven and battered. Yet it's that small rudder at the back of the boat that guides where the captain wants that ship to go. And think of what James is trying to say with the horse. You pull the rein to the left, the horse goes left. You pull it to the right, the horse goes right. Well, some of you might have had the same experience as I did, where you pull the rein left and it goes right. But let's, exchange, let's assume a competent rider and a well-behaved horse. Yeah. The bit is used to direct where the horse goes. Our tongue directs where we go. So two points here. One, who is in charge of the reins or the rudder? It's the captain or the rider, right? The bit or the rudder doesn't just turn by itself. Someone is in control of them, and it's your eye. We're in control of our tongue, in control of our words. James says that you may have strong winds bearing your boat, but ultimately we control what comes out of our mouth. And ultimately, the direction we head coming from that. And number two, both the ship and the rudder are very small relative to the rest of the horse or the ship. Yet arguably they're the most crucial part for getting from point A to point B. So also our tongue is very powerful. James says, our tongue may be a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. It is very powerful among the body parts. Don't underestimate it. Now James ramps up his analogies. Our tongue is like a spark that can be used that can cause a forest to burn to the ground. Is a world of wickedness corrupting our entire body. It can set your whole life on fire for it is set on fire by hell itself. 
James addresses the question, why is the tongue so important? Because it can corrupt the entire body and set your whole life on fire. Let's pause here quickly and just take a look at what some other preachers, uh, some other teachers spoke of regarding the tongue. First Peter 3 verse 10. For whoever love life, whoever would love life and see good days, must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. Proverbs ten nineteen to twenty one. Too much talk leads to sin. Be sensible and keep your mouth shut. The words of the godly are like sterling silver. The heart of a fool is worthless. So why is our tongue so important? We ask again. Think about how many sins involve the tongue in some way. There's obvious ones like lying, gossip, boasting, selective reporting, slander, criticism, two-facedness, anger, flattery. But what about other sins? What other sins can use the tongue in some way? Think about adultery. There probably aren't many people who have cheated on their spouse without using a few words to seduce someone else. Or think about how much Wrong words have contribute, being said contribute to marriage breakups. So what sin doesn't involve the tongue in some way? I can't think of many. And I think this is what James means by the tongue being a whole world of wickedness, corrupting the entire body. It can set your whole life on fire, for it is set on fire by hell itself. But let's not forget that words can also do good. Proverbs sixteen twenty three to 24 it's Proverbs sixteen twenty-three to 24. From a wise mind comes wise speech, and words of the wise are persuasive. Kind words are like honey, sweet to the soul and healthy for the body. The key principle here is that we need, must consider our words, and if we're in a position of authority or influence, consider your words even more. I thought this was a fitting quote on the topic. A woman once came up to John Wesley and said she knew what her talent was and said, I think my talent from God is to speak my mind. Wesley, I don't think God would mind if you buried that talent. <laughs> James says that our, wor- our, our tongue is restless and full of poison. Therefore, we shouldn't just be saying everything that comes forward to our mind. Think of a cabinet maker. He would only put his best work forward for viewing or for sale. If he made something that was faulty and unusable, he would throw it in the tip. And this is how we should be with our words also, only putting forward what is noble and righteous and filtering out anything that's destructive. James goes on, Our tongue has a contradictory nature. It is the highest calling of praising God and yet the lowest evil of cursing mankind who is made in his own image. Just think of Peter in the Bible. He uses his tongue to confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, then uses that same tongue to deny him three times. James is calling into question the consistency of our speech. He says, And so blessing and cursings come pouring out of the same mouth. Surely, my brothers and sisters, that is not right. He continues, Do both bitter and fresh water come from the same spring? Or figs come from grapevines? Again, another rhetorical question from James. He is saying that if bitter water is coming from the spring, then the source must be bitter. 
And if figs are growing on a plant, it must be a fig tree. If our speech is evil and bitter, then this reflects on our heart. Whereas if your mouth puts forward good speech, then it reflects of a good source. If you can turn with me to Matthew chapter 12, verse 33. Matthew 12, 33. Jesus says, speaking to the religious leaders, A tree is identified by its fruit. If a tree is good, it will produce good fruit. If a tree is bad, it will, the fruit will be bad. You brood of snakes, how could evil men like you speak what is good and right? For whatever is in your heart determines what you say. A good person produces good things from a treasury of a good heart. And an evil person produces evil things from the treasury of an evil heart. And I tell you this, you must give an account on judgment day for every idle word you say. The words you say will either acquit you or condemn you. Our, sorry. our words are a reliable revelation of our inner character. James doesn't just teach us how to speak, though. He goes on from verse 13 to tell us how to live also. James addresses the wise in verse 13. James chapter 3, verse 13. If you are wise and understand God's ways, prove it by living an honorable life, doing good works with humility that comes with wisdom. But if you are bitterly jealous and there is selfish ambition in your heart, don't cover up the truth with boasting and lying. For jealousy and selfishness are not God's kind of wisdom. Such things are earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For wherever there is jealousy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and evil of every kind. But the wisdom from above is first of all pure, it is also peace-loving, gentle at all times, and willing to yield to others. It is full of mercy and good deeds. It shows no favoritism and is always sincere. And those who are peacemakers will plant seeds of peace and reap a harvest of right. Going back to verse 13, the word here that is used to be translated to wise is sophos, which is among the technical terms for teachers, a teacher or a rabbi. So again, James is directing his teaching at those who are preaching. He says, wisdom is not merely head knowledge. Wisdom is not merely head knowledge. Being able to recite large portions of scripture or dressing right or saying the right thing to make yourself sound smart, that's not wisdom. James says, prove your wisdom and understanding of the ways of God by living an honorable life and doing good works with humility. Real wisdom and understanding will show in your lives as good conduct. Wisdom and knowledge are invisible, intangible, you can't see them. But James tells us how to judge if a person is truly wise. He says they will show it in the way they live their regular life. True wisdom also doesn't boast, it is meek. After telling us what true wisdom is, James also tells us what true wisdom isn't. Bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. Again, we need to understand the culture of the day and then we can understand fully what James is saying here. Remember how we said how wisdom was at the center of the culture at that time and many young men were striving to be teachers. He is testing their motives of those who are preaching or aspire to teach or preach. Is it jealousy? 
Have they been watching someone else teach and are coveting their position or their number of followers? Or their status in society? Is their motive behind wanting to teach just their own selfish ambition? Reflect on the jealousy of the Pharisees when everyone started flocking behind Jesus to follow him. What about the story of Simon the Sorcerer in Acts 8? Simon the Sorcerer had been amazing the people of Samaria for years with his magic, claiming to be someone great, and everyone listened to him. But then along comes Philip and preaches the good news and baptizes people, and Simon, along with others, is baptized. When the church in Jerusalem heard the people of Samaria were repenting, they sent along Peter and John there as the two apostles to lay hands on the people so that might receive the Holy Spirit. Simon the sorcerer then comes up to Peter and John, and we pick this up in Acts chapter 8, verse 18. Acts chapter 8, verse 18. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given when the apostles laid hands on people, he offered them money to buy this power. Let me have this power too, he exclaimed, so that what I lay, when I lay my hands on people, they will receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter replied, May your money be destroyed with you for thinking that God's gift can be brought. You can have no part in this for your heart is not right with God. Repent of your wickedness and pray to God. Perhaps he will forgive your evil thoughts. For I can see that you are full of bitter jealousy and are held captive by sin. Pray to the Lord for me, Simon exclaimed, that these terrible things you have said won't happen to me. See that characteristic that Peter identifies in Simon? Bitter jealousy. Simon had lost his status in the crowds. And so rather than seeing the Holy Spirit as the gift from God that is and the blessing, he sees it as his next opportunity to rise to power. He's jealous of that power that the, and the status that the apostles had. And James tells us how to identify where jealousy and selfish ambition is behind the desire to preach. Verse 16 you will find disorder and evil of every kind. So what does true wisdom look like? James tells us that the source of true wisdom is from above, and its characteristics are it is pure and peace-loving, gentle at all times, willing to yield to others, and full of mercy and good deeds. James then references back to chapter 2. True wisdom shows no favoritism and is always sincere. So there you go. I feel like I've just preached a sermon about preaching, which I guess I basically have. But I don't think there'd be anyone here that would disagree these teachings are only relevant to me standing up here today, but they're also relevant to everyone here. Reflecting on James's teaching, think back about your last week. What direction have you been turning your rudder? Which way have you been turning your reins, and how much control do you have over them? Are you controlling your tongue through emotions or letting the Holy Spirit guide you as to how you speak? When I review my week, it's been an embarrassing failure, if I'm honest, and hence why the sermon's been hard to write. This has been a really challenging sermon to work through, both in the sense of what it says about those who teach, but also what James says is the effect of the tongue. I caught myself going to say something, and it's a moment of thinking, what control do I have over my tongue? thinking back over what I've just written in my sermon and thinking, am I creating a spark here that's going to create destruction? Or are you saying something that's encouraging, going to challenge someone in the right way? 
and it is actually going to build them up. As we go into the time of communion, it's a great time to reflect on the example that Jesus gives us of how we should be in control of our tongues. Can I have some people to hand around the emblems, please? Let me read to you from Matthew 26, verse 57. Matthew 26, verse 57. When the people who had arrested Jesus led him to the... Sorry, I'll give you a bit of context to this. Jesus has just been arrested at Gethsemane, and his followers have abandoned him, and he's been brought forward to the council of religious leaders. And we pick this up at verse 57, Matthew 27. When the people who had arrested Jesus led him to the house of Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of religious law and the elders had gathered. Meanwhile, Peter followed him at a distance and came to the high priest's courtyard. He went in and sat down, sat down with the guards and waited to see how it would all end. Inside, the leading priests and the entire high council were trying to find witnesses who would lie about Jesus so they could put him to death. But even though they found many who had agreed to give false witness, they couldn't use anyone's testimony. Finally, two men came forward who declared, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Well, aren't you going to answer these charges? What do you have to say for yourself? But Jesus remained silent. Then the high priest said to him, I demand in the name of the living God, tell us if you're the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus replied, You have said it. And in the future you will see the Son of Man seated in the place of power at God's right hand and coming on clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his clothes and sh- to show his horror and said, Blasphemy, why do we need any other witnesses? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your verdict? Guilty, they shouted. He deserves to die. Then they began to spit in Jesus' face and beat him with their fists. And some slapped him, jeering, Prophesy us, you Messiah. Who hit you that time? In the face of all those false accusations, what was Jesus' reply? You have said it. Jesus had perfect control over his tongue and sets that goalpost of what we should be aiming for. And Jesus knew where that trial was leading. What would happen when he was found guilty? Yet he bore our punishment, the weight of our sins, on his shoulders. Just like the words of the song, the innocent one judged guilty so that the guilty one, that's you and I, might walk free. Lord, I thank you that that you did bear those bear our sin on your shoulders, that you bore the judgment that was meant for us. Um, and Lord, I thank you for the example that you led here on life, that you didn't just leave us down here and you don't know what we go through, Lord. You actually do um, know our individual lives and you do know the trials we go through because you went through them yourself, Lord. And I Thank you that you set that example for us to aim for and to to really strive to be more like you. And I I thank you for the sacrifice you made um, on that cross for us um, that we might have eternal life. And I just pray for the sermon that that any words that are from you, um, that they will rest in people's hearts. And any words that are just my human foolish wisdom, um, that they will fall on deaf ears. And I pray that um, you will just bless everyone here.
Amen.